Is deconstructionism the future of Christianity? Or just another way of saying what has been said before, that there are good reasons to rethink what has historically been thought of as Orthodox Christianity. Is it time to rethink sexuality, the Bible's inerrancy, and Christ as the only way to salvation? Or are those eternal truths that the Christian is actually obligated to defend? We're gonna be talking about all of that and much more on today's episode of Theology On Air. Well, welcome back to Theology on Air. Theology on Air is an offshoot of Theology on Tap, a ministry to young adults here in Houston, where we gather together around craft beer, most importantly, and interesting topics around theology, philosophy, faith and culture. Um, and then we get excited to get into the studio and talk more in depth about some of those things. Um, I'm joined, as usual, by Evan McClanahan, the senior pastor at uh, First Lutheran in Midtown. But he's taking a different role today. He's I'm the moderator, and we're going to have a a conversation about deconstructionism, and I'm going to let our guest in just a second introduce himself um, and let them spar a little bit, but nicely. They're, they're both nice, even though we joke around about Evan being grumpy. He's very nice. Um, but uh, as usual, if you want any information on Theology on Tap, like our upcoming events or how you can get in contact with us, questions, things you don't like, go to HoustonTOT.com. That's where you can find out everything you need to know. Um, and if you are listening on the podcast, do rate us, review us, and tell a friend, because that's how we'll grow. And also let us know the stuff you want to hear. We would love to know more about that. So, okay, we're talking about deconstructionism. If you are at all in the world of faith adjacent to anything on social media, especially you're probably hearing this word getting thrown around. Different people mean very different things by it. We actually did several podcasts about sort of the origins of the word and literature and these kinds of things. But I think we're going to have a, just a kind of a pragmatic conversation today about what does it mean today? What do we need to do about it? What are kind of the big topics at play? So I'm just going to give each of you like uh, five minutes. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, and, you know, uh, Joel, we'd love to hear just a little bit about your own story. And then how did you come to this stance? How did you end up where you are? And since you're our guest, of course, I'm going to let you go first. Give us a little introduction and tell us about what does it mean deconstructionism to you? Yeah. So my name is Joel Michael Herbert. I lived, uh, I'm kind of a born and bred evangelical. Um, I was raised in extreme fundamentalism. Um, and then in my teens and twenties migrated to the evangelical world, which felt like uh, a lot of freedom compared to where I came from. I was very raised, very hellfire and brimstone, you know, mm. women wear dresses, couldn't listen to rock and roll music. Even Michael W. Smith was considered kind of too worldly. Um, oh, for real? So, yeah, for real. Um, yeah. So, uh, so evangelicalism just felt like this breath of fresh air, you know, the grace um, sermons were about the love of God and the grace of God and forgiveness and uh, all that. And that was a, a far cry from where I grew up. And so that was just beautiful for me. It was this huge healing experience. And um, for reasons I'll probably talk about later, I, I kind of, and this is an overgeneralization, but I think it, I think it's true. It, I began to realize as the deeper and deeper I got into evangelicalism and I, I did seminary and finished a, a master of arts in theology at an evangelical seminary. Uh, I, I began to realize, at least in my opinion, evangelicalism is the same old, same old fundamentalism, just packaged a little differently. It's the same thing I grew up with. And it was, I just realized, man, I, my doctrine didn't really change at all. It's just kind of, we can drink beer now, or we have like drums in church. And, um, Anyway, that that um, 
I, I lived in Texas for 10 years after high school. So I grew up in Washington state. Uh, that's where I was kind of in the fundamentalist world. And then uh, after high school at age 19, I moved to California, uh, worked for Forest Home Ministries, which is a, uh, a huge Christian camp in Southern California, and then to Texas and worked for Acquire the Fire for three years. Acquire the Fire, I've them. heard that name forever. Yep. Uh, I led worship with them. I did a leadership academy with them. Um, my wife and I met there, and then we moved to Houston and um, went on staff at a in an evangelical church in the woodlands a non-denominational church we worked for several different churches there woodlands church uh hope city ecclesia um faith bridge i'm on i'm on here right now yeah um and um he's a dad that's funny I'm, I'm a dad i have three kids a nine-year-old a seven-year-old and a four-year-old fun fact this is exactly how evangelical i was nine years ago my oldest daughter's name is piper grace for Whoa. exactly the reasons you probably think her name is John Piper. Piper. <clears throat> After Piper, John Piper. And mm. then wow. my second son's name is Aiden Michael Graham Herbert, who is named after A.W. Tozer and Billy Graham. Um, wow. Yeah. And then my the youngest son's name is Noah David Livingston Herbert, named for David Livingston. Uh, and so I. Or the name of like Rob Bell. Right. <laughs> yes. Or or Ryan maybe, maybe uh, Brian Howard. McLaren. Yeah. Doug Paget, well, we can go there. If I'm going to be like really on brand, I should have a son and name him Barbara Brown Taylor Herbert or something. Oh man, we were just talking about her the other day. Yeah, we yeah, go ahead. Or daughter and name. Well, I guess I already named my daughter after a man, so it doesn't matter. She actually is mad at me because she's like, "You named me after an old man." I'm like, you know, I did. Gender bending. Piper's Piper's actually a cool name. I uh, think it is. Yeah, yeah. Um, now you mentioned deconstructionism, and I very much hesitate. It has become an ism, and I kind of hate that because I don't like I don't like that it is an ism. Um, hey, Piper, I am actually live right now on Facebook, <laughs> but you can you can say hello. Hey, this hi, is hi. <laughs> cool um, name. Thanks. <laughs> very feminine. Very. Feminine. But yeah, as an ism, I like Sarah. Sarah, right? Yes. Yeah. You said. Um, this th that it means a lot of things to a lot of different people which i wholeheartedly affirm and that's why i hesitate to call it an ism because so many people have i mean some people are deconstructing catholicism some people are deconstructing uh fundamentalism in general uh via like, kind of how i did via evangelicalism some people are kind of coming out of just the straight up baptist world a lot of people are coming out of the um pentecostal world and all of those are kind of their own unique yeah. uh, strains of deconstruction uh, my wife calls her process decolonization, which for her makes a lot more sense. I think I would stick for me with deconstruction because that's what it feels like. For her, it doesn't feel so much like she's deconstructing anything, but she's decolonizing. She's de-whitifying her, her religious experience. And I feel like, especially for my wife is a woman of color, I feel like for people of color, that's a particular brand of deconstruction yeah. uh, that needs to happen. And it's not even necessarily about what you believe as much as, um, which would be more of a deconstruction, you know, doctrine dogma mm -hmm. as the lens through which you're taught to believe. Right. Okay. Like there's a filter on it. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Well, um, this is just an introduction. We're going to get into the nitty gritty here in a bit, but thank you, Evan. Do you want to give us a little five minute of your? Well, I, I was born an old man. I, I remain yeah, an old man. Um, 
Yeah. I, I mean, Hey, I grew up, um, you know, I grew up a Lutheran, uh, still am a Lutheran. Uh, we left the denomination I grew up in, which is the ELCA, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, which sort of from its inception, really in 1988, you know, began a kind of you know, what you might call a leftward or a, a progressive or a liberal drift. And uh, that kind of came to a head to a degree in 2009 when they ordained openly gay pastors, which, you know, is is something that has pretty much happened in every major mainline denomination or will soon and has caused essentially a split uh, in, in those denominations. Uh, and so about 10 years ago, we left that denomination primarily on that issue. But there are certainly uh, issues before that. Uh, basically, my entire seminary uh, experience and from 03 to 07 was uh, a lot of infighting among groups about, you know, all these issues, whether it was, you know, homosexuality, the environment, you know, the war in Iraq at the time. Um, but, you know, at, at the base of a lot of these sorts of things, you know, is the authority of scripture, you know, the historical critical method, uh, you know, was Jesus transgender? That was definitely, I mean, we, we had a new, whole newsletter debate about the, you know, whether Jesus was transgender. And this was like in 2005, you know. Wow. I so, feel like that's ahead of their time. Yeah. Oh, we were, we were avant-garde, you know, in terms of, <laughs> terms of, uh, you know, leaving orthodoxy behind, but dare, dare I say, but yeah. So, um, so, so that denomination, you know, and I was very much against leaving the denomination, uh, even though as a, you know, more conservative, whatever, you know, I mean, I was I've, I, at the time, I would say that I was, you know, certainly pro-life still am, of course, you know, I, I, I did not agree with the interpretation, the biblical interpretation that led to the justification of homosexuality. So I had issues with that, but I still didn't want to leave the, the ELCA. But eventually I did because I came around to believe that it was essentially irredeemable. That 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 as a you know the the joke was the evangelical Lutheran Church in America wasn't evangelical it wasn't Lutheran and it wasn't a church but it was in America. It's just the A. Yeah, it's basically everything had kind of been stripped away because there had been this this process of they didn't call it deconstructing then, but and of course deconstruction as a concept goes back to you know sort of began in you know philosophy and literature and yeah. you know postmodernism and words don't have any meanings and Foucault and Derrida and all these people that I have not read but people love to quote. But, you know, it, it, it's certainly true and relevant that, you know, this process of, de, you know, de, de, uh, construction, whatever you want to call it, it's been around for, for many, many decades. It's, yeah. it's the same in philosophy as it is in all, the, all of these denominations. So the ELCA wasn't unique. Uh, it was very much a part of the culture. And basically, I, I'm a guy who's, who's now, you know, said then and is saying now, I'm in the construction business. You know, uh, I want to build up. Right. I, I want to know what is true. And then I want to build. I want to build community. I want to build the church. I want to build up individual lives of faith. Um, and, you know, sort of where I would take issue with whatever we want to call this thing. And I, I cer certainly understand deconstruction is something like a way of thinking. It's not a movement with a single leader at the top, you know, to where we pay dues and they have a board of electors or something. Um, but, you know, I, I would say it's my, my, my concern with it is that ultimately it's a self-destructive uh, process. Uh, there's not going to be anything left at the end of the day. All the moors are being stripped. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and and I'm a guy who wants to kind of reclaim the fundamentals. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I, I think that I, I, I would probably, well, almost certainly agree with, with uh, say, a rejection of, you know, legalism, right? Or the kind of fundamentalism that you left. Right. Um, there certainly is... Um, you know, as Lutherans, we, we, we want to proclaim the gospel of the good news of the freedom of Jesus Christ. Uh, you know, Jesus said that we are to have joy um, and, and abundant life and to be people of hope. 
Mm-hmm. So uh, that's all very much a part of the message. My my kind of major thesis that I've said over and over and say at the say here at the church over and over is that, you know, when Lutherans, we love to talk about law and gospel, but what basically happened when we when yeah, when we I mean we have whole books about it, you know, they're you know, the, the Missouri Senate president, CFW Walther, his and I'm I'm kind of embarrassed you didn't name one of your children after CFW Walther. Um but uh but, but I mean his I book is called Law never Lutheran, you know. Okay, okay, that's cool. Well you had Everyone gets yeah, but but you know, law and gospel—it's a thing. But what what sort of happened is that we're like, oh, okay, I got it. Law and gospel, different things, but gospel's better, right? So we're going to go with that. You know, it's like it's like the dessert. You know, jumping straight to dessert. You know, not eating eating your broccoli. Um, and so I think we're actually in the middle of a massive reclamation project of the law of God, mm-hmm. which is which is a, a major building block of of constructing this thing we call Christianity. And it in in the fact that the law has been sort of cast off um, in favor of the gospel, uh, which is happening in evangelical churches and, and mainline churches and Catholic churches, absolutely uh, has a major issue with this as well. Um, I, I, I think that's, um, that's led to kind of where we're at. And so I think we've got this massive project ahead of us where to, we have to, we have to construct, uh, Christianity kind of from the ground up using both law and gospel, understanding both, not sacrificing one for the other. So anyway, so, so, so because I'm that person, I'm the, I'm the get off my lawn guy. I'm the, I'm the, I have you read Leviticus lately. Yeah. You know, uh, so uh, that's kind of where I where I've ended up. And I will say quickly, um, one of the things I'm I'm sort of noticing is, say, uh, uh, you know, the the new member. We're a small church, but the new members that we do have, I'm I'm finding there's more of an affinity around uh, a, sort of a broad conservative worldview, mm-hmm. and conservative can can cover a lot of ground, rather than say a Lutheran transfer. Right. I don't get a lot of Lutheran transfers, although I've gotten some from liberal Lutheran churches where they're like, I'm done. I can't take anymore. Um, but, you know, I think there's going to be a kind of coalesce, coalescing, uh, a less of like, oh, you're Presbyterian. Oh, so am I. Let's get together. I think it's going to be less that in the future. And I think it's going to be more, hey, I'm defending a strident, uh, defensible, positive, robust Christian worldview. Mm-hmm. And therefore, we have more in common than 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 not. And so I, I tend to my, basically for the last 20 years, you know, I went to seminary in 03, wow. uh, you know, more or less, I, I've found myself in profound disagreement with those in the more progressive or left-leaning camps. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah. So when we did the, the, the event that he was talking about on ex-evangelicalism um, ahead of time, I interviewed, well, first of all, I, I listened to a lot of podcasts about deconstructionism and not just like Rob Bell, but. Um, one of the guests that we had on, he has a podcast called Redrawing the Bath, and he has Brian Zahn, the various other people on. And so listen to a lot of stuff. And I started taking notes about the when people talk about what kind of started them on this journey. What was what, what was the tipping thing? Sometimes it's LGBTQ stuff, sometimes it's women's roles in the church, right? Like it's various things, but at the almost top of the list, if I were doing like hash marks, had something to do with how they view the Bible. Like someone that was in authority over them was like, Bible's inerrant. The Bible says it, I believe it or whatever. Mm-hmm. And they kind of went, eh, but is it, you know? So I think maybe that's where we start is views on the Bible. What is mm-hmm. the Bible to you? How do you view it? 
Uh, I know a lot of people now, even people that would call themselves an narrativist won't even use that word. I try not to use that word because it has baggage around it. People mean different things, just like the word deconstruction. So I don't, we don't need to get into a squabble about, you know, like commas and things like that. But what, what is the Bible? Is it authoritative? Is it trustworthy? Do all the parts matter just as much? I've heard people say like, well, Jesus said it, but that carries more weight. Than Paul, because Paul brought his own kind of like baggage to the table. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I know you're like, you're ready. You're talking yeah. about it. So. Oh, there's like six oh different threads that I'm like, how do I, I bring all these together? Uh, okay. I, I'm going to just speak it. I'm just going to go straight for the jugular, say it as clearly as I think go I can. Um, I, th- I think it is complete and utter foolishness okay, to say that the Bible is inerrant in any way i think it is um like i don't think it stands up to any logical scrutiny whatsoever uh and that's actually probably what started me on this journey more than anything it's uh for me i feel like i've been deconstructing since i was 12 years old uh i when i first went to a seventh day adventist prophecy seminar uh, that was like my first yes i literally went to 40 straight days of a seventh day adventist prophecy seminar we were not seventh day adventist but that was my first exposure to like something outside of like yeah. pretty different to what my parents taught me, what my church taught me. Yeah. And it forced me to go to the Bible. And for me, my, but my dad was a, if the Bible says it, in fact, those books right there, the interpreter's Bible back there mm-hmm. uh, behind you, my dad had those on his shelf. He had Matthew Henry. He had Adam Clark. He had every old commentator, uh, Wesley, um, and, uh, and it was like chapter and verse, man, you don't get to just say your opinion and say, God says it like, you got to show me in the word. And so I was always a word guy. That's very loud. Can you, thank you. Um, so for me, it was like all about what the Bible says. And to this day, even as 33 years old and five years into a pretty hardcore deconstruction process, it's still about what the Bible says. I don't see the Bible the same way anymore, but I still, I now, now when I reason with people, I still use the Bible because I feel like the Bible actually supports a much more progressive view of itself uh, than, than I was led to believe. Um, But I'll just say right off the bat, I think that inerrancy, I think, and that's the, the idea that every word of God, every word of the Bible is exactly historically, scientifically um, accurate that um, I don't think that that's tenable in any way. You're really distracting me, Piper. Can you please? Uh, I'm just giggling about people that are listening to us on the podcast that can't, because if you're watching on YouTube. I, you I have a nine-year-old better. that's just yeah. standing in front of me, like dancing, and it's really, really hard to concentrate. That checks out. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I really, okay. need, you to, like, I really need you to not distract me. Like, go eat your cookies in the kitchen. I have yeah, I understand, but it's really distracting. because I. Get, that Bible says so, you need to do it. Uh, yeah, the Bible says obey your parents. <laughs> honor them would be uh, would be a handy text right now Uh, i think think this whole thing about the bible and jesus said it paul said it moses said it whatever uh i think it all kind of comes back to this idea that the bible did not fall out of the sky as 66 books of the old new testament it it is a long and everybody knows this conservative scholars liberal scholars doesn't matter we know that that there's this process by which the bible came to us and it came to us through the people of god through the people of faith and they vetted it and it was it was centuries of, um, you know, Josiah, King Josiah in like the sixth century BCE. Uh, he pulled out the law of God yeah. that had been neglected for 
for who knows how many years. And what did he, what was that that he pulled out? Well, it wasn't the Bible that we know. It wasn't even the Hebrew Bible. It was the Torah. They didn't have, they wouldn't have written first Kings and second Kings and Chronicles and Daniel and all those books that came later because most of the prophets hadn't even lived yet at that point. So the Bible in Josiah's day was probably some form of the five books of first five books of the new test of the old Mm -hmm. Testament. Uh, when when Timothy uh, or whoever wrote First Timothy, when he says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for proof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, he's not talking about the Bible that we call the Bible. He's talking about uh, I don't know what he's talking about. We don't actually know when First Timothy was written. Uh, we, we, it was probably around the end of the first century, beginning of the second century. Even if you're a uh, in fact, it actually poses more problems if you're more conservative. If you believe Paul wrote it, right? Because uh, there's less of it for him to be going on, yeah. right? Because there was no New Testament at that point. There was nothing resembling a New Testament. The New Testament didn't even begin to come into an actual canon of a New Testament until the middle of the second century, when a heretic named Marcion created his own canon, and he was like, "I only like Luke and Paul," and he threw out everything else. And then the Orthodox party, the not big O, little O Orthodox, the the mm-hmm. uh, the quote unquote real Christians, um, they decided, Hey, Marcion is wrong. And there are not two different gods. There's not a bad God of the old Testament and a good God of the new Testament. We don't want our Bible. Shouldn't just be Luke and Paul's writings. We actually believe that the old Testament belongs. And we believe that the Hebrew scriptures belong. We believe that the other gospels belong and James and revelation and Jude and all that belong. But that was this long, long process that didn't really end until, I mean, it still hasn't ended. There's multiple communions around the world of um, not Mormons or anybody else, but like people that are considered Orthodox Christian, the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, for example, I think is something like 89 books in their canon. There's, there is no set Bible to begin with. The King James itself, there's an Apocrypha um, that uh, was translated by the King James translators back in 1611. Um, so even me, to let say- Let me pause you just for the yeah. sake of time to say, I, I think we're both- mostly with you on this yeah what does that have to do with like you started by saying it's crazy so the inerrancy thing are you saying that's crazy because at different times there were different things called the bible but what is it now what is it now to you right it's not inerrant i would affirm uh timothy actually that says it's inspired i do i think it's incredibly inspired i can i continue to find inspiration in it um, I continue to find, uh, even to say, and the word inspiration means God breathed. Um, I would still affirm that. I don't, I don't take that in a literal sense that that means every word of the Bible is a word from God. Uh, the Bible actually doesn't ever say uh, explicitly about itself that it is the word of God, which it couldn't because there, it, it's not like it was, it's not Harry Potter. It wasn't written by JK Rowling, like one, one person that at the end is like, Hey, this is the word of God, by the way. So we have to bring a theological commitment to the table of how we read scripture to even say that it's the word of God, uh, because we have to believe that Moses, Jeremiah, Isaiah, David, uh, Paul, Peter, were all uh, necessarily telling the same story. And I think that is an incorrect assumption. And of, yeah, I'll leave that. Well, no, it's fascinating. But if it's not... I'm, I'm rolling with you. I'm picking up what you're laying down, but are, what does that mean for when you start to go to a text and say, it says this, it means this, and someone else disagrees? How does what you just said 
shine light on that. And maybe we'll, well have that. I'll say that inerrancy does not solve that problem. I grew up, uh, I, I'm just the I grew up with people that were very hardcore inerrantists, hardcore Wesleyan, Arminian, inerrancy people. And they would disagree very strongly with Adventists who are also inerrancy people and Calvinists who are also inerrancy people. So inerrancy doesn't solve any problems. In fact, sure. the majority of splintering has not been over inerrancy or whether the Bible is the word of God, but over people going, no, the Bible says this, and I, and therefore we must believe this. Another group saying, well, the Bible also says this, and therefore we must. Um, so, so we may just have to dig into a couple of those to, to see, but I want to give you a chance to your thoughts on the Bible. Wouldn't it be funny if right now he was like, thumped the Bible, he said, the Bible says it, I believe it. Don't do that. Yeah, well. So I, I would affirm inerrancy, like, for example, the the and I, I wouldn't say I've always affirmed inerrancy, but, uh, you know, if you if you've read the Chicago statement on inerrancy, I think it, it says it well. And I agree with what it says. So um, even, I have not read the Chicago statement on inerrancy. What's, I would actually about? say that everybody should go read the Chicago statement on inerrancy because I think it's horrible and I think it's dangerous <laughs> and I think it's can I cuss on this podcast? I mean, we'll bleep it, but, mm, but no, don't, don't do it. Nice yeah. Let, let's, let's work for me later. I think it's bat crap. Yeah. Um, yes. Thank you. I like it's, I just, I think everyone should go read it and see what, when people say, when a preacher says inerrancy, you need to know what they mean because usually yeah. when preachers say inerrancy, that is what they mean. Well, at least I haven't been consistent. Well, yeah. So I think, I think, sure. I mean, even with, with people who would also hold to inerrancy, I would have disagreement. So I, I agree with that. For example, I would affirm that within the scripture, you have genres, right? So not, not, not all of scripture tells the same story in the same way. You know, I think prophecy and history and, and parables and things like that are different. Like I might disagree about whether Jonah is a parable or a historical account. Okay. But I still affirm inerrancy. I don't think, you know, but, but, I but, I but, but just because, just because, say, Jonah may not be a historical event doesn't mean that I don't think Jesus rose from the dead. I think it's it's clearly I think the, the Gospels are clearly meant to convey that, you know, Jesus rose from the dead. But so I would say, uh, of course, uh, as it says in that statement that, you know, uh, understandably that when we talk about inerrancy, we're talking about the original inspiration of the text and that, uh, you know, Peter talks about how uh, the word of God was was passed along um I, I you know through through i i can't remember the exact phrase yeah, of how he says it, but, of god you know, of old wrote as they were moved by the holy spirit i believe thank so. you yeah. yeah so um and 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 by the way and he talks about you know uh paul and the other scriptures so i do think there was an understanding of the the, the fact of inscripturation in the life of the apostles and i would say that when paul wrote first timothy and he talks about how the scriptures are god breathed he was talking about the old the, the old testament what we call the old testament sure. so yeah. the idea that when people always say oh the, the you know andy stanley says this of all people he's like oh the, the the new testament church didn't have a bible that's that's ridiculous of course they had a bible it's called the hebrew scriptures yeah. um and 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 also the scriptures were were written um through the life of the apostles i would also say um to say that there's no set Bible, I would say the Bible was set when it was written. That's what makes something canonical. Uh, what you know, my canon is everything I've ever written that I've actually ever written. Right. Um, if Sarah writes something in my name, it's not part of the canon of Evan McClanahan. But when Evan McClanahan writes something, it is part of the canon. So the Bible, the Bible's canonicity doesn't depend on an outside authority. Uh, and this is really is the crux of the issue. It doesn't depend on an outside authority saying, "Oh yeah, that's canonical." It's canonical no, it, by it its very nature. Does. It absolutely does. No, it doesn't. I would say by, defi by, so by definition, 
So who decided that the Shepherd of Hermas wasn't going to make it into the text, into the canon? Who decided that by, by, by its nature, it's not part of the canon because it's not apostolic in nature. It doesn't have apostolic authority. But that was not that was not uh, clear in the first and second century. Those those with a couple of tweaks of history, we could have had a a New Testament that did not include Second Peter and did include the Shepherd of Hermas, for instance, yeah. because Second Peter was highly disputed all the way up into the fourth we century. The Shepherd of Hermas was, uh, and a couple of other Shepherd of Hermas and the Epistle of Barnabas, uh, those two were highly uh, thought of in many different communities, and eventually they just didn't make it make the cut. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's yeah, but they but they didn't make the cut. They they didn't make the cut. I mean Hebrews right, and Revelation and you based know, on other, what? Yeah. Based on, their, based, on, based on their apostolic nature. Well, somebody uh, decided that it didn't fit with the apostles' teachings, but the Hebrews did for some reason. To this day, we don't know who wrote Hebrews, and they've never known who wrote Hebrews. Jude and Second Peter have always been, Eusebius called them um, suspect uh, writings. They've always been, um, and I'm not saying they're, they're bad or they ought to be thrown out of the Bible or anything like that. I'm just saying the process by which the Bible came to be the only there are only seven books in the New Testament that we actually know for a fact who wrote them, and those are the authentic letters of Paul, uh, Romans, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Philippians, First uh, Thessalonians, and Philemon. The rest are all Matthew and John. John. We don't know that. We don't know that for sure. There's uh, there they were anonymous. They were anonymously written. The only way we know we think we know that uh, the gospel writers were the gospel writers. Uh, is from, I believe, Irenaeus and uh, Tertullian in the late uh, second century, and Justin Martyr, um, who spoke of the memoirs of the apostles. And then I think it was Irenaeus that specifically linked it back. But he's writing 100 years after they were actually written in contemporary scholarship, particularly when it comes to um, John and to a lesser extent, Luke, um, tends to think that Luke and John were not written by Luke and John. Matthew and Mark, it's a little more murky, but there's no, there's no. Let, let, well, let, let me, let me ask you this. Do you think that the gospels were, were written by eyewitnesses? Hmm. I do not, but I also don't think that that matters. So to a certain extent, this, it, that feels like a tangent that I don't actually want to go down because I don't, I don't actually think that uh, Matthew, the disciple of Jesus had to write Matthew in order for Matthew to be inspired or to accurately record um, some of the words of Jesus, it, it pretty clearly does uh, text the historical critical method, textual criticism uh, shows, especially with Matthew, Mark and Luke, that uh, a lot of the writings, particularly in Mark, do go back to the historical Jesus. Um, and yeah, but if you but if you use a tool like histor- the historical critical method, which I'm, I'm not like opposed to, right. uh, I think it's been sort of overused. And there are many tools, by the way, within what we call historical criticism, you know, literary criticism and et cetera, et cetera. And those aren't all sort of equal in their weight or value. Um, but, you know, I, I do think it would make a difference if it's eyewitness testimony, because what we are staking our claim on is whether these are things that Jesus actually said or didn't. I mean, the right. Jesus seminar infinitely used marvels to vote on what the authentic sayings of Jesus were. And they, you know, they cut out a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. But I would argue that most again, I don't want to you, you know keep appealing to authority, but most scholars would agree that other than the the you know, the the the, the reference to Trinity in first John five, the woman uh, caught in adultery um, and uh, what what's the third big uh, text? Uh, the longer ending of Mark are, are, are basically uh, probably, you know, not uh, they, they were probably later editions. But other than that, I think most scholars would say 
that these um, these are authentic writings of the. I, I mean, I would say Richard Balcom's book Jesus and the Eyewitnesses was a pretty con- conclusive uh, and, and and convincing test. But even I, I wouldn't even want to rely on a historian saying, yeah, this is probably written by eyewitnesses because I do think that at the end of the day. Um, I do think the scripture says that it is about it, that it is the word of God about itself. You said earlier it didn't, but Jesus says, have you not uh, 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 read what God said? Mm. Right. And so Jesus himself is saying God spoke through the Old Testament, through the Hebrew scriptures. Mm. He is saying you can consult because he's arguing with people who have yeah. who have refused the scriptures in in preference to their to, to their tradition. Right. The whole Corban thing of how you treat your parents with the law and how that's a wrong thing. Jesus is accusing the Pharisees of abusing the law and misusing the law. And what is he appealing to to get them back on track? The scripture. And he says that this is what God spoke. So I do believe in in that specific instance, just to be clear. Yeah, he's speaking of the Ten Commandments. So he's telling the Pharisees, hey, you don't get to come along and say, hey, because we have a tradition, it annuls the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments are pretty clearly, I'm not saying nothing in the Bible is the word of God. They're, the Ten Commandments. Okay, then, then by what standard By what standard do we choose what is of God and what is not? That That's the trick. I, I think that misses the point, actually, because um, there are there are things in the Bible that specifically it says God said in Exodus 20, mm-hmm. one of those things, God, he not only said it, he wrote it on stone. So uh, that's pretty specifically the word of God. And Jesus refers to that as the word of God, honor your father and mother in that mm-hmm. particular context. He refers mm-hmm. to the 10 commandments is the word of God. And he says, you guys are doing it wrong because you don't understand scriptures or the word of God. Um, but I don't, I don't think that that means uh, I guess I don't think it's an either or proposition where we have to like throw out things. I don't think that scripture was ever designed, whether Jesus is reading it or Josiah is reading it or Isaiah is reading it. I don't think scripture is ever designed to be this sort of like, here's the word of God. I mean, Jesus himself messes with the word of God. Paul does it constantly. Matthew does it pretty annoyingly. Where you're what like, do you mean by that? Like uh, they'll bring up scriptures and they'll, and they'll try to use it as a, as a, point a point they're trying to make and you and i reading it if we're good you know good seminary trained exegetes quote unquote we would kick paul out of that exegesis class we're like that's not what that means bro uh matthew telling his readers in matthew chapter two that uh god that uh joseph brought uh mary and jesus back from egypt and settled in nazareth because the scriptures say out of Egypt, I have called my son. That's really horrible exegesis. That's not what the Hosea passage that he's quoting is talking about. It's specifically talking about Israel. Uh, but there's a different mindset among the apostles and the writers of the New Testament, including Jesus, that uh, treats scripture very differently. And in their minds, I don't think they're twisting scripture. Matthew is taking a passage from Hosea that is clearly not about Jesus. It's clearly about Israel being God's firstborn son coming out of Egypt, and he's applying it to Jesus in this really ingenious way that ties Jesus's fate into the fate of Israel. And so in that sense, that's where I feel like the shift is uh, between an inerrant, an inerrancy um, point of view and a progressive point of view. I think we're just progressives are being more like Paul and Matthew and Jesus actually were by going uh, it was never, these guys were rabbis. These guys were particularly Jesus and Paul were trained rabbis. They weren't, um, it was, that was how rabbis looked at the Bible. It was a constant yeah. back and forth. Sure. And push oh, I mean, t- today there are rabbinical schools that, you know, fight tooth and nail over the, right. the meaning of things. But, but I do think it's a really important point, which is that 
if all of the scripture isn't the word of God, Mm -hmm. someone is claiming to have authority to create a hierarchy Mm-hmm. of what is and what isn't. And I think that's a problem. And I think that's been revealed. I think that gets back to the law gospel thing, which ends up kind of oftentimes being an old Testament, new Testament thing where they pit Jesus right. against say old Testament right. law. Which, yeah. To be clear, I, I reject that completely. I, I actually yeah. fundamentally disagree with the a law gospel dichotomy. I think that's a false. Um, I think it's a reformation idea that um, mm-hmm. was maybe useful perhaps at the time, but I don't think it actually, I don't think Jesus or Paul would have agreed with that. But, but, but I would say though, that, and and I would I would even go so far to maybe try to meet you halfway. Mm-hmm. I would say that within the scripture, there there are sort of things that are sort of, if you will, more important than others. Okay. Like for example, if you don't have every single king listed in second kings of the northern kingdom, like yeah. you know, listed in alphabetical order in your mind, that's probably okay, but you probably should know the Ten Commandments. So okay, I got it. There are like probably things like more important than others. However, you know. If 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 it if we do take a cafeteria approach where it's like, well, there's this and there's that and there's this and that, I think this still applies to people, but no, I don't think this does. That's where I think we we should have a more total approach where we say, you know what, it's all God's word, it's all of equal value. Now what we have to do is consider application, consider questions of fulfillment. But I'm going to lean on the side of it being God's word and therefore it con- having continuing relevance. Whereas what I have experienced. And the progressive community is they seem to do the opposite, right? Where it's like, I'm going to do a minimalist approach. So interestingly on that Matthew two piece that you brought up, that's fascinating. And what I hear you saying is that it's not, that isn't helpful or um, adds to our faith, right? But that it was a more artistic use of the Hosea passage. Yeah. Than that saying, look how cool this is that now we have the Exodus story sort of being retold and unfolding in the Mm -hmm. story of the gospel of Jesus. Which I think is beautiful. Beautiful. It's, it's what, beautiful either way. It's um, what J.K. Rowling did. I feel like the Bible is really just Harry Potter uh, in the ancient world. J.K. Rowling just stole everybody else's story and made it better and brilliant. made it all into one. That's kind of what the Bible well, she, she Apparently, she said she it, it is a parable of Christianity. Really but stole, I'm not a Harry stole, Potter guy, so I don't she know. She stole Jesus, Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, mashed it all together and made a bestseller. And I think that's what the Bible did in the ancient world. We took the we took Hammurabi, we took the Epic of Gilgamesh, we took the story of the Jews, and we mashed them all together. And we're like, Christianity is awesome. Hmm. I have so many things about that last sentence I want to hit on, but I'm yeah. going to restrain myself because I think we're so obviously we we disagree a little bit about the nature of the Bible. But it sounds I can hear dripping through you talking that you value the words of the Bible. Yeah, I know that Evan does. Yeah. So when you start looking at different issues that I bet you guys disagree on and that many people that are deep into the deconstruction process would disagree on, the way that we read the Bible and the way we understand Mm -hmm. it is different. So I say we tackle a couple of those for the remaining, we've got like half the time left. Um, The big one that, you know, I mean, it would be the elephant in the room if we didn't, uh, if we didn't talk about it is the LGBTQ. Well, we won't tackle all of the letters, but homosexuality. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I think most a lot of people that I've talked to that are deconstructing are part of affirming churches right. um, and they've come out of a not affirming church. Mm-hmm. So, and I'm, I'm making the assumption, maybe I'm wrong that you're part of the affirming community. Um, am I right about that? I am now, but that's actually a fairly recent development for me. And it wasn't my first, um, it took me a while to be, I yeah. would, I would say I was still pretty progressive theologically while still kind of holding on to that idea. I would have said probably three or four years ago, even, uh, yeah. I don't think homosexuality is God's best for 
for creation yeah. of children. And even at that point, I probably would have been more liberal on other points. Interesting. Well, we're going to talk tackle a couple of them because, and again, these are the things that got the most number of hash marks as I was listening right. to people in deconstruction. That one, the idea of what we call universalism, that maybe yes. it's not as exclusive as some people would have you think, but right. I figure we'll start with homosexuality. We'll end with exclusivity. Okay. And I don't, and by the way, can I just say I'm loving the vibe here? Evan knows this, but we often get people on the podcast who are just too, I mean, you are lovely, but they're trying Thank so hard you. to be gracious and kind and charitable that they actually won't say what they believe. You're over there oh, talking too. about that poo. So yeah. I, I've, had one, I've had one beer. And so you're getting honest, <laughs> Joel. Um, am I allowed to drink whiskey or is it only beer? Wait, does it come on tap somewhere? Somewhere they yeah, have they. I'm sure they do. I'm yeah. more of a whiskey guy, and I, if I'm, I'm honest, I'm gluten free, and so I only have gluten free beers, which are just not good. Um, <laughs> but I yeah. do have new whiskey that I wanted to try out. So do it. Hey, go for it. it. As, but if you start slurring your speech, we're gonna have to cut you off. So then I'll just have to represent you. And and give Piper your keys right now. Okay. Piper, yeah. my keys. Yeah. Put your keys like in the microwave or something. Oh yeah. Okay. But on the topic. Since you're pouring your whiskey, maybe we'll give uh, Evan sort of the first. Yeah. Uh, Evan. Okay. All right. All right. All right. Well, okay. So much to say. We've done a lot of shows about it, but I've never actually talked about it quite a bit. But I I, I do want to say that when, because I've dealt with this topic, obviously, for years, that I, I want to just basically start with the positive case that God makes about male-female marriage. And it, basically, it's all right there in Genesis. You know, he made them male and female. He made them in his image. And he um, he said to be fruitful and multiply and to have dominion over the earth. So I see a husband and wife as essentially um, in, in charge of a miniature civilization. Um, and that and part, part of this is the is the bearing of children. Um, and this is done with male and female. I don't think that's controversial. I don't think it's um, even arguable. Uh, you know, grass uh, has male and female. Corn has, well, corn is grass, has male and female. Uh, you know, uh, you, we can go on all day about seahorses maybe. But other than that, everything is male and female. Worm, worms and seahorses. Okay, fine. And maybe dung beetles for good measure. But basically, male and female is the way that, that, uh, that, that, that the whole creation, by the way, um, the, the whole creation is to be fruitful and multiply. God says that about, uh, you know, the, the, the birds of the air and the, and the fish in the sea. Uh, they just don't have dominion, but they are to be fruitful and multiply. So God is a God of life from the beginning to the end. Yes. And, um, and we participate as producers in that uh, through this act. No, so that's the positive case. Uh, yeah. There's nothing in the Bible that would contradict that. Um, and we can come up with exceptions all day long about maybe infertility or something, which is its own issue, which the Bible talks about quite a bit. You know, lots of lots of examples of, of in, you know, infertile women uh, right. who are blessed by God. But that's sort of a whole other issue. But I would say there are the obvious passages that are negative on it. You, you said earlier, well, God said this. God said that, you know, the Ten Commandments. Well, if you read Leviticus, it's quoting. I mean, there are quotations from God. And God says these are things that you know, men are not to do with other men. Um, And we can say, well, yeah, that was before that, you know, Jesus came along and Jesus said other things. Well, Jesus affirmed Genesis one, Jesus uh, spoke against sexual immorality, which in a Jewish context would have included homosexuality. Certainly Paul says things, by the way, I wanted to come back on like the whole foolishness thing, because it Mm -hmm. might be a little bit trite, but Paul does say something about like, you know, wisdom and foolishness. And I I think that would be too easy of a comeback uh, on, on that. And, and a little bit, um, cheeky but i'll but, take it i'll take it maybe yeah. i'm just a wise fool i don't know yeah but but i would say that that i i i 
uh, on, on, on homosexuality, you know, what you tip, what you typically hear, we take the six passages that are against it. We kind of, we kind of, we claw reverse, we kind of overlook Genesis. And then it's like, well, Sodom and Gomorrah is really about hospitality. Well, Leviticus, Hey, we eat shellfish now. So Leviticus is done away with. Um, I, I just don't see it. I, I think that there is a, uh, that there is a participation uh, in creation and procreation and in the in the very basic command. I mean, the Great Commission, uh, yeah, is Matthew twenty eight, but it's also to be fruitful, multiply, and have a dominion. That hasn't gone away. Uh, that that part of our you know covenant with creation is still in play. Um, and I think that what Leviticus, for example, reveals is even if the Old Testament civil law is fulfilled and done away with, or even if that's part of the ceremonial law of unclean and clean. It tells us what God thinks. Um, and, and by the way, God says things about how heterosexuals are and what we are to do, you know, and how we are to honor God with our bodies and things right. of that nature. Not even mentioning Romans 1, which I think is absolutely clear and, and powerful on, on this whole thing. So, you know, I, I, I don't know. I'm, I, I'm kind of curious as to why this is kind of an issue that uh, – so many kind of progressive Christians, it's it's like a hill to die on. Um, it's like it were it, I, I it seems like it kind of came out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. Not exactly. It's been around for for many. It's been around forever. Mm-hmm. Um, but I I do find that interesting because I don't know if it's a question of you know looking mean, not wanting to hold the line. I don't think there's really any good biblical exegesis against it. So I'd be interested to kind of know, like, like, how did this become kind of a cause celeb and, and why? I mean, I have my theories, but I'd be curious to know. Yeah, and I would love to just hear as much as you feel like sharing about your own story, because you said it was a pretty recent pivot for you. Yeah, I, I really can't speak to the broader deconstruction yeah. culture, because I think everybody, I think everybody has their own journey with it. Um, I have um, two queer sisters, um, but that was not the catalyst for me and for a lot of people i think it is like a family member or a close friend that comes out and they go what do i do with this this person still loves yeah. jesus or this still you know and it takes them down the rabbit hole for me i was already i really you know that weezer song if you want to destroy my sweater uh-huh. pull this thread as i walk mm-hmm. away that's like my deconstruction i just feel like i've been sort of very slowly pulling on threads for years and years and years and about five years ago uh you can do the math on that uh, I really just started pulling and I was just like, screw it. I'm not going to have, I'm not going to be afraid of questions anymore. Mm-hmm. There was, there was definitely a catalyst for it. And it was in 2016, somewhere around November of 2016. Throwing that out. Yeah. yeah. I don't remember mm-hmm. specifically, maybe like November 4th, 6th. All right, all right, we get um, it. Yeah. November uh, 8th, but who's counting? Oh my gosh. But I think that was, it wasn't the only catalyst, but it was a catalyst for me to go, whoa, are we what is Chris, what is this thing that I bought into that I'm 20, what was I, 28 years old at that point? Like I've given the last 10 years of my life to evangelicalism. I've sold out to it. I did an Acts 29 uh, church planning residency in Houston. I was, I was at an evangelical seminary. I graduated from evangelical seminary. Uh, I went to Liberty University for God's sake. I trained under Paul Balash and Ron Luce and Shannon Etheridge and like these royalty of CCM and evangelicalism, whatever. and for me, uh, yeah, I've always been a Bible guy, like the Bible has to say it. And so the book that actually really pushed me over the edge, cause I'd read a few different books about homosexuality, but it was Colby Martin's book Unclobber. And I specifically remember I was reading that while I was, I was actually going back and forth to Boston 
uh, doing a semester at Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary. Hmm. Um, I, I finished my, I, I did most of my work at Fuller Theological okay. Seminary, uh, but I did do a semester at Gordon Conwell. I also did a semester at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Oh, you were really uh, all over. Yes. So back when I was like, I thought Fuller was like a little too liberal. I was like, you know, maybe I should try out Southern. Even it out um, a little. <laughs> yeah. So now I look at Fuller and I'm like, wow, that conservative place. Holy cow. Uh, oh, <laughs> But, um, but for me, yeah, homosexuality and I, I'm a little, I'm ADHD. I'm a little all over the place, but I think it's very, very important. It's so easy to throw LGBTQIA all in together. Right. And I feel like those are, that's a kind of a, yeah. And we don't even have the time. So that's I think why that's I a mistake. So I think, yeah. And they're not the same issue. Homosexuality so, yeah. versus transgender, I think are very different. And I'll freely admit that I think homosexuality in the Bible is a fraught subject. And, uh, and there's a lot of dancing you got to do. And I do think it checks out in the end, but I get that it's a lot of dancing as far as the transgender issue. I see that as a completely different issue. Um, and I feel like biblically there is zero case to be made against transgender people. I think there is a case to be made, to be made against homosexuality in the Bible. Uh, and I'm fully aware of that. And I I've wrestled with that myself. Transgenderism though. I don't think there's a single biblical case that can be made against transgenderism. Um, we'll have to have you on another podcast. Yeah. So if we talk about homosexuality, um, that for me, I I was aware that there was kind of some specific passages that talked about it. And, uh, so reading Colby Martin's book really, really helped me because he went basically passage by passage and hit each one of them and, um, talked about his own journey, which mirrored mine in a lot of ways. He worked for this mega church and he was kind of like, he was a worship leader. And then he was kind of persona non grata and they kicked him out and it was all kind of what was happening to me at the time. So that might've been part of why I, um, but, uh, but even in the middle of that, I think I was still very much in this like kind of inerrancy sort of mindset. Like, I don't want you to tell me, and it always bothered me that progressives would come out the gate with like, well, Paul was just wrong. And I, as an evangelical, now I would agree with that. Now I'm a progressive and I'm like, well, yeah, okay. Paul was a little bit of a whatever, but uh, back then it really bothered me. People would be like, well, Paul's wrong. I'm like, you can't just disagree with Paul. Like you tell me why that's not what Paul meant. That's fine. Let's talk about historical context. But don't tell me Paul was just wrong because I, like you come, came to the Bible. I use past tense because I, I did then. Um, came to the Bible with this theological commitment of the Bible is the word of God. Therefore, you need to show me where I'm wrong. And I'm completely okay with being wrong, but don't tell me that Paul is wrong because Martin Luther yeah, King yeah. said something, right? Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to fast forward I, I you a little know. bit just for time's sake. Go ahead. What, what kind of moved the needle for you? I mean, you read this book. It was resonating with you because he was kind yeah. of where you were. Yeah. Journey. But was there like a, oh, this verse that I used to think meant this, I now think means this? Or is it that the verse still means what it said, but I don't know that I give that verse the same weight as I give other verses? Mm. It really wasn't about weight for me. I I am, I, I love the idea of the being a red letter Christian and following Jesus because Jesus is the one, like, he's the one, right? He's the one we're supposed to be he's following. Important. Yeah. Uh, I get that. And so if, if it did, I think any of us, would say if it really did come down to like Paul said this and Jesus said this, and they're very obviously disagreeing with each other, we would all choose Jesus. Like okay, if, yeah. if we had to, if, if you had yeah, to choose. Your head. Yeah, yeah, I get you. 
Um, but uh, but there's this theological commitment among Protestants that that wouldn't happen. Jesus and Paul wouldn't disagree with each other. Now I do. I believe they might, and they probably do. But um, but for me, it was. I'll be. I'll just be completely transparent. I think Romans one is the is the biggest um, is the biggest problem for affirming um, theologians. Yeah, People that's that, fair. Um, I I think the other ones can all be fairly easily dismissed. Um, and, uh, so it, I guess it kind of came down to for me, okay, Romans one, I still see it as in the context of idolatry and I still see Paul trying to make a case that he wraps up Well, he does it in the whole book. Romans is this brilliant theological tone that no one, I mean, people, I mean, just debate constantly about what is the book even really about, but I think he lands the plane a little bit. In, in chapter two and three, and to me, one Romans one is really just a setup for the point he's trying to make in two and three. And so the points he makes in one, I think, are sort of incidental to the bigger point he's making about all are under sin. All are all have been. Uh, I think it's three twenty, somewhere in three, where he says all have been sold under sin. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All mm-hmm. of that. Uh, there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. All have sinned. Right. And so that seems to me to be the point he's trying to make. And Romans one is really just him being all things to all people, which he, he says he does. He, and he does this pretty brilliantly throughout his ministry, uh, both in his epistles and in the book of acts where he meets whoever he's, his audiences, he meets them where they're at. So I think Romans one, he's knows he's speaking to this church in Rome. He has not been there. Uh, he did not plant the church and he says, man, I want to come. And, but he recognizes that they are a diverse church and they are both Jews and Gentiles. And so he's trying to build a bridge between Jews and Gentiles. And he, I think Romans one is, is his kind of nod to, Hey, you Jews, y'all know the truth. Y'all know the things that are bad and things that are good and what you're not supposed to do. Gentiles don't necessarily get that. And he uses this sort of example of idolatry, sexual immorality, uh, which they live right in the middle of. They live in Rome, which is one of the biggest cities in the empire and obviously the most influential. Same things happening in Corinth. Same things happen in Ephesus. These giant cities. Epicenters of wicked. Um, let me let me let me ask you this though. Would you say that homosexual acts are good? Sometimes in progressive or deconstruction circles, people actually will talk about how how they're holy. I've never tried them, so. Um, but you know what I mean? I mean, are they are they would you say that they're equivalently equivalently morally good as heterosexual acts? I don't think any sex act is inherently good or bad. Um, See, that's where I disagree. Like heterosexual or homosexual. Say it, like it's a gift, a blessing from the Lord a gift. Well, good, it's good gift. it's it's part of the it's part of being a producer within God's creation. I don't like saying co-creator. I don't like that language. I reserve creation for God alone. But I would say. You know, I, th- I think that there is something fundamentally and inherently good about, you know, sex that can and does lead to, to procreation. I think, well, it, you know, our bodies were clearly designed for that. I'm, so when people come along and they say, hey, you know, homosexual acts are just as holy and good. I, mm-hmm. I, 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 I'm, I don't understand that. I don't know how that could be said. I mean, I, when I'm intimate with my wife, we we were intimate and we created three different children. So we've been intimate a total of three times in our marriage. Right. That's exactly. Right. Uh, yeah. right. Um, and, uh, and that's awesome. when we created these children, um, I, after three kids, my wife had three C-sections. I had a vasectomy. Uh, we now continue to be intimate and we know there is no real chance 
that that intimacy will lead to producing any offspring. Understood, uh, but yeah, but, but, there, it, doesn't but feel, it doesn't yeah. feel any less holy or any less uh, intimate or anything else now that we're not intentionally trying to have kids, you know? Yeah, I hear you. But what I'm saying is, biblically, do you think that there is a way that it could be said that homosexual acts are good? And what I, I don't mean good in the I mean that in the fullest sense of the biblical word, like God looked at, you know, on the fifth day and he said that it was good. I yeah. think that you can say that about heterosexuality because of the Great Commission in Genesis one, which is to be fruitful and multiply. Those things all sort of go together. Mm -hmm. Um and you don't necessarily have to answer that, but I hear that language all the time. Like, oh, oh I do. Come, I do. Come. I do think it's good and, and holy. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Because I would I would say, like in Romans one, I think Paul, it's an example of idolatry, but he literally says that we're talking about dishonorable passions. I just don't think there's any redeeming uh, of that. And and in in First Corinthians six, I, I yeah, I know people do handstands to come around that too, but the right. words he chooses are synecoitus is is pulled from the Greek. Uh, uh, Septuagint, the, the the Old Testament, Leviticus twenty. Uh, he he is choosing the words very carefully. He is he is using Old Testament to say that these acts are abominable, and he isn't. You know, maybe we could argue. Well, I, uh, I, I think that that's a I think that's a possibility, but I think the burden of proof is on the conservative interpreter to prove that because that's not inherent in the text. He does use a word that doesn't exist anywhere else in the ancient world. In mm -hmm. fact, it seems he may have coined it, but I think the burden of proof is on the conservative interpreter to prove that in fact, he was yeah. trying to connect it back to Leviticus 20. I don't think he was. I, I, think yeah. I mean, I, I think, want to keep going on this because I, I've, I've heard so many threads I want to pull on, yeah. but we have like five minutes yeah. left. So. Well, it seems to me that Paul would, if he was trying to be clear about that, he would have used a different word. He wouldn't have made up some word. He would have used a word that meant. Well, I, I think I, he didn't make up the word. He used the he used words from Leviticus. So I think he he couldn't have been any clearer. Actually, I, th I think he he is as being as clear as can be that the Bible that was available uh, to to the people in Corinth, which would have been a Greek Old Testament, if they if they had the scriptures at all, they would have been the, the Septuagint. Right. Those are the words he's using. So in the context of talking about this particular sex act, you know, I do think he I think he's being as clear as he possibly he can. Yeah. Um, by, by the way, um, pornography is wrong and adultery is wrong. So, you know, just to be clear, um, there's a pretty limited range of acceptable sex, you know, biblically, you know, but again, my, my, my sort of thing is, Hey, I, I, I don't understand why this is sort of the hill that mm -hmm. we have to die on now, you know? Oh, I, I, that's right. Oh, I'll tell you why. I'll tell okay. you why. And then we can move on if you want to, because, and this comes down to, again, the words of Jesus, Jesus said, and I keep coming back to this over and over again. Jesus said, by your fruits, you will know them. Men do not gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles. Every tree that does not bring forth good fruit is cut, cut down and cast into the fire. To me, it is all about fruit. When you look at a theology, what kind of fruit does it bear? And affirming theology, uh, non-affirming theology, I believe, has borne incredibly hurtful fruit. Incredibly, I think that's where it finally came down to for me is uh, I could explain away every um, passage, um, except for Romans one. And I felt like I was close enough on that one. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's anti-affirming theology, uh, hurts people and destroys lives. And I saw that I've seen the fruit of that with my own eyes. And, uh, I don't believe that's what Jesus wants for his children. I don't believe Jesus wants despair and suicide and people to have to 
deny what feels very core to who they are in order to follow him. Yeah. It's uh, interesting. I know, I know, but we, we're moving. Yeah, yeah, okay. But it is interesting that uh, I think I would actually tag onto that and say so many things about the church in any, whether you're fundamentalist, evangelical, this or that, have borne some hurtful fruit. And we Absolutely. have a lot of kind of apologizing to do, right? Um, my One of my children talks about the church being full of hypocrites, and it is. Like, well, it's, you know. I don't know if I should say this, but I'm just going to go ahead and just an in interest. I'm an Enneagram 4. I'll just say it. I don't identify as a Christian anymore. Okay. Um, and I, I am still a music minister at a Methodist church. I I still find a lot of value in the Jesus story. I love the Bible. Um, I consider myself a theologian. Um, but for a lot, a lot of what you just said, those reasons, I don't even, I don't feel like I can call myself a Christian anymore. Let, let me ask this, though. I have to ask this. When Jesus went around and ministered to Pharisees, mm-hmm. was he hurtful to them? Absolutely. Okay. Would, you, yeah, but that, we got to save that. I, I know, but but my my point is like Jesus ministry is hurtful to me. I know, me right? Too. Be, uh, uh, because sex, yeah, I, 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 I mean, they're, 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 show me show me one spot in the Gospels where he was actually like uh, he actually hurt or offended somebody that wasn't a religious establishment person. He he yes, he was brutal to Nicodemus or the Pharisees or whoever, but anybody that was outside. It, that could be considered an outsider, whether they were a prostitute or a uh, tax collector or anything else. He was always incredibly kind to them. And I yes, he did. Ruler might have something to say about that. No, no I, I'm not. I'm not saying he wasn't kind and compassionate. I'm not saying we shouldn't be kind and compassionate yeah. to to people who are homosexual. We absolutely should. And and if there's if there's cruelty, um, yeah. that that's inexcusable. Okay. However, you know there there you know, but we we don't say. To if, if if this is sin, then the loving response is to call for repentance and amendment of life to live a, a full harmonious life with God. So let's move on though, because we got right. we're over now. But let's just okay. one more thing. Maybe just like a couple sentences each. Okay. And if it's juicy enough, we'll have you come back. Um, although I would love to have you come back because I'm I really do enjoy okay talking. Right? Like you know your Bible. I told them that we can't get progressives to come on half the time. They 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 think we're mean to to. to they think we're so mean they don't want to participate anymore. That blows my mind. I love this stuff. I want to like, I want to reach, I want, I want to have the conversations. I want to reach a different, a, a broader audience. Well, that's good. You might be the one we keep having, but no, we have a couple <laughs> progressives that, that love us, but um, let's just, let's wrap up, even though it's an, an enormous topic, this idea of kind of universe. So one of the things that I heard when I was talking to a lot of people in deconstruction mode was um this idea that christianity or organized religion or the church is the only way mm-hmm. is so narrow and yeah. um and it ex- just excludes so many people and there are so many lovely well-meaning um kind good whatever people out there in the world so yeah. that was one of the things that got people thinking do i want to be part of this exclusivity club so yeah. i don't know where you are on that but um but maybe let's just have a couple sentences put toward that the topic yeah. of sort of exclusivity versus universalism. And maybe you don't even like the, that term. I don't know. Yeah. Thoughts? You're going first. Oh, I'm going first. Okay. I would say that there definitely is a thread in the Bible of the, the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I think we need to be very clear that the kingdom of God does not mean going to heaven when you die. That's, right. that's a, a Western <laughs> modern uh, interpretation of that idea. 
the kingdom of God is the reign of God right here and right now. And maybe that does include heaven in the, in the hereafter or whatever, but that's not what Jesus meant. Um, so, um, when it comes to universalism, I, I would say I'm a hopeful universalist. Um, I, I don't know that every single person that ever existed is going to experience eternal bliss. So, you know, for those of you listening on the podcast, there are a lot of quotation marks. Yeah. I'm putting a lot of like, yeah, yeah, air quotes here. Um, but, um, as I see Paul in particular, which is funny because Paul is the, he's the persona. Nobody likes him. Progressives don't like him. Paul to me is pretty obviously a universalist. He uses the word, especially in Romans five in Colossians one in Ephesians one, um, and in first Corinthians no, second Corinthians four and five, I think um, he uses the word all a lot in Philippians uh, two. He does the same. Uh, all, all things are going to be brought under Christ. All things yeah. will bow. All people will bow. All every tongue will bow, blah, blah, every blah. Will bow. Um, and I think again, we need to separate out. Paul is, is writing in his context. Jesus is speaking in his context. His, his biographers are writing. There's a specific agenda about that. The writer of revelation where we get a lot of our ideas about, you know, the wicked being cast into the lake of fire and, and such like that. Uh, he has his own agenda. Uh, but I think there's enough in the new Testament, particularly in the writings of Paul. And then in revelation in revelation 21 and 22, uh, the writer of revelation specifically set, uses these words all again, all things, uh, I heard a great voice out of heaven this saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is with man. He shall dwell within them. They shall be his people and almighty God will be with them. He said unto me, write these words. It is done. Look at me. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I am making all things new. And then in Revelation 22, he says, there's this city and her gates shall never be shut. And that yes, on the outside are dogs and sorcerers and, and people that don't belong inside, but her gates shall never be shut. There's this sort of eternal invitation yeah. um yeah i see both in revelation and in the writings of paul and in jesus to just say come and at the end of revelation it is the spirit and the bride say come and let the one who hears say come and to all who would thirst let them come come and drink of the water of life come and drink of the fountain freely and without charge and that echoes the old testament uh isaiah 50 i think it is ho everyone that thirsts come to the fountain oh. drink and buy money oh, buy yeah. milk and bread without without uh, money, without price. Um, so to me, it is um, the whole theme of the, both the Old Testament and the New Testament is everyone belongs, everyone can come. And there's very little evidence that I see apart from maybe like Hebrews 10, where it says, it's important that a man wants to die. And after that, the judgment. Uh, that's the only verse I can think of off the top of my head that even implies that death is some sort of like hard stop where it's right. too late for you, uh, quote unquote. Um, I see a lot. Of, I would say all means all when Paul and John and Jesus, when they say all, it means all, all things are being made new. Um, Paul specifically compares the gift to the trespass in Romans five. And he says, uh, just as in Adam, all died. So as, in, so in Christ, all shall be made alive. So if we believe in total depravity, that there is actually that Adam's sin affected everyone, then we have to say the next sentence, then Jesus' sacrifice also includes everyone. Um, and then he, and he goes down. down. You've convinced me. Not really, but it's good. I mean, I I'm here for it. I like, I like hearing you talk. I, I would, I would just say quickly, but 
so I think the Bible talks about all a lot, and I do think that every knee will bend, but I don't think that means everyone will be saved. I think those are that's a mixture of, uh, you know, it's maybe a category error or, or, or whatever. But I, I think that, um, you know, I think all men and women are made in the image of God, and I think that when Christ comes again, all will know. Uh, and I think that all of creation will be made new. But I think that there's a, I wouldn't say a potential, but a certainty that there's a, an offense done to the holiness of God and, and and the rightness of God when when the mocker and the scoffer mm-hmm. and the one who knows that God exists but suppresses that truth and unrighteousness, uh, if if we believe that God will simply um, stand there and say, you know, well, you have mocked me and scoffed me your entire life, uh, that they will be uh, judged in the same way judge is a biblical word i just don't think that's honest to the scripture whether we like it or not and i don't think any of us do um but but you know i would say i'm on a preservation project here you know construction project preservation project i want to i want to not that god needs my help preserving his holiness or or justice but i but i do think that we need to lift up his holiness and justice Mm -hmm. at the expense of saying um god has the sovereign right to judge those who who have done evil and who have done yeah, wicked? I would agree. Um, with that. So, yeah. <laughs> I hope he does. I I mean Isaiah, where a lot of what we get, uh, a lot of what Jesus is quoting, a lot of what the Re- the Revelator is quoting is from Isaiah sixty six, where Isaiah talks about the the enemies of God that will be destroyed and their worm will not die and the fire will not be quenched. That's all straight out of Isaiah sixty six, mm-hmm. uh, which doesn't speak to in Isaiah at least it doesn't speak to this eternal conscious torment idea as much as just a final. De- uh, destruction, <laughs> not deconstruction, a final destruction of the wicked. And um, I, I would say that feels a lot more. I don't know that God is going to redeem all people. I love the book, The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. Yeah. That was pretty good, big turning point for me. Um, this idea that uh, the gates of hell are locked from the inside. I don't know that God is going to uh, eventually turn everybody, so to speak, quote unquote. But um, I believe that it's certainly possible, and Scripture seems to give us that um, that option, that possibility, and it certainly seems least, to portray God. When you is, talk about being a hopeful universalist, you're at yeah. least, and I know you don't right now call yourself a Christian, but you're at least a Christian universalist, right? That that through Christ, so you wouldn't have any problem with the with Jesus saying, "I'm the way, the truth, and life; nobody comes to the Father but through me." Right? I mean, we've we've talked about the difference between all will eventually say yes to Jesus or be part of his family, the whole all concept versus like um, you be Muslim, you be atheist, you be Buddhist. And we all are kind of finding, you know, many paths to the same God. You seem like, Oh, I got it wrong. I can tell from your wins. I don't know that. That's a great question. I think when, when John or whoever wrote John is uh, talking, is quoting Jesus in John 14, six, which I, I would agree with what I think are the majority of scholars in saying that John doesn't, for the most part, report any historical words of Jesus. I see the gospel of John. I know uh, Evan will disagree with that, but um, I see the gospel of John as sort of a early second century Jesus calling, sort of a devotional. um, Like I have thoughts on Jesus calling, Um, but that's a whole other podcast. Well, I've never actually read Jesus calling, but I'm saying it's like a devotional sort of thing. Mm -hmm. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but with me. Yes, I agree with everything you just said, Sarah. Um, yeah. But I would say that uh, we're speaking of the Christ at this point, the universal Christ. So oh boy, that's I'm, a, I'm a big fan of Richard Rohr. Yes, Richard Rohr and the universal Christ. Does yeah. that mean 
Uh, does John 14, 6 mean that I, Joel, have to affirm that Jesus of Nazareth is the only begotten Son of God in order to gain eternal life? Absolutely not. I would unequivocally say that is not what John 14 According to Joel, it's absolutely not. Uh, I would say that John 14, 6 means that Christ is the bridge to get to God, but the Christ is the logos. The Christ and the logos are virtually synonymous. Okay, I, got, I, I see where you're coming from now. In Jesus yeah. is the Christ. And it's the same thing that dwells in me. It's the same spirit that dwells in you and me. It's the Holy Spirit. And yes, the Holy Spirit can exist. That's not to say that uh, Islam or atheism or Mormonism or anything else are all equivalent. I don't think that. I think there are some religions that are pretty objectively better than others. Uh, I think Islam kind of sucks. Um, and uh, I think Buddhism is way better, probably okay. than both. I'm so uh, sorry. I, I have to get us well. off because yeah. we are way over. And because you just said like 16 bajillion things that I'm like, podcast one, podcast two, podcast three. We'll yes. talk about mysticism another time. We'll talk. Yeah, it'll be great. But for now, we do have to end. So uh, I know we're leaving you kind of on a cliffhanger if you're listening, but that's, that's good. good though, right? Yeah. They'll come back yeah. for the next one. I hope you'll come back. I've yeah. really enjoyed this. And I think next time we need to pick something a little less broad, maybe like. Well, but, you did literally pick the two biggest topics, two, two of them. Yeah. No. Okay. If people are interested in learning more about you or like, where can people find you if they maybe want to email you, ask you questions or something? So my name is Joel Michael Herbert. Um, I have a medium blog uh, where I um, air all of my thoughts because the world needs more white men talking about their thoughts. Uh, and um, <laughs> I'm also, I also have music on Spotify and all that. But um, my email address is just J.M. Herbert, Joel Michael Herbert at iCloud.com. Feel free to reach out to me um, and whatever. I love talking. I love dialogue. You can find me on Facebook, um, Instagram. Uh, TikTok is where I, I air most of my her heretical content. Perfect. Um, that fits. Hello. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and here, got a little interlude to the camera. The okay. Right. And then Evan, I mean, you're always around, but uh, people can find out information about Evan and me and all of the leadership theology on tap at our, um, our website, houstontot.com. If you go to the leadership page, you can see beautiful pictures of us and our thoughts on things are like best attempt to put our entire theology into like six sentences. So Whoa. A lot of fun. yeah, go check it out. It's life-changing, magical. <laughs> No, anyway, but thank you guys for listening. Thank you for coming on. Definitely have you back on. Um, and to our listeners, as always, until we talk next, we encourage you to question freely, think deeply, and disagree as needed.